I'm Laura London, and this is a special live stream edition of Speaking of Young. Returning to the podcast today for episode 105 is the author of Jung's Map of the Soul, Jungian analyst Dr. Murray Stein in Zurich, Switzerland. He holds a Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School at Yale University in Connecticut and a PhD in Religion and Psychological Studies from the University of Chicago. He trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, where he earned a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst, and later went on to co-found the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, where he worked as a training analyst. Dr. Stein has served as president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology, known as the IAAP, and the International School of Analytical Psychology, known as ISAP Zurich, where he currently works as a training and supervising analyst. He is the author of over a dozen books, including Minding the Self, Men Under Construction, and In Midlife, and his latest book, Four Pillars of Jungian Psychoanalysis, was published on February 1st by Chiron. He is co-editor of the multi-volume series, Jung's Red Book for Our Time, and his interview with Dr. Thomas Kirsch is included in the book, A Jungian Legacy, edited by episode 90 guest, Luis Morris. Dr. Stein's collected writings are currently being published by Chiron. The latest volume, The Practice of Jungian Psychoanalysis, will be released on March 15th, and his Map of the Soul book series for young adults, published from 2019 to 2020, includes transcripts from our episodes on the Grammy-nominated chart-topping group, BTS. A full list of Dr. Stein's books, interviews, DVDs, and more can be found on our special Murray Stein page in the blog section. His previous appearances on this podcast date back to 2015 when I visited him at his office in Zurich. We've also recorded several other episodes together, including Jung's Map of the Soul, The Analyst and the Rabbi, Jung's Red Book for Our Time, and eight episodes on BTS covering the topics of Jung's concepts of the persona, shadow, and ego. Please visit Speaking of Jung's BTS page for links to all of our content on BTS and for links to everything discussed in this episode. This video interview is being live streamed on Thursday, March 3rd, 2022, through the magic of StreamYard. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me again, Laura. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Uh, before we get into today's topic, which is personality and uh, Jung's concept of psychological types, I'd like to tell everyone about your two new books, uh, one of which uh, is out now. It's titled Four Pillars of Jungian Psychoanalysis. It was published and released by Chiron on February 1st, and it is now available in both hardcover and paperback. And I just would like to add that there are links to purchase the books in the show notes for this episode. Um, if you're listening on YouTube or one of the podcasting services, I'd like to encourage you to visit our website, uh, speakingofjung.com. So what is Four Pillars of Jungian Psychoanalysis about? 
Well, it's, um, I wrote it uh, originally as lectures given at the uh, Chicago uh, Young Institute <clears throat> some years ago. And then I took those lecture notes and turned it into this book. And the book really is a response to the question, what's different about Jungian psychoanalysis from all the other psychotherapies? What sets it apart? What makes it unique? Uh, because um, Jungian analysis is a type of psychotherapy. It belongs to a very large field, uh, mental health and, uh, and psychotherapy. So there are many, many different schools and approaches. And the, um, the Jungian school is a rather small one by comparison to, to some of the others. Um, but it is unique and it's different. And I wanted to um, uh, have this book make the make the case, make the argument that the, the difference lies in the combination of these four, what I call pillars, or these four elements that go into the practice of um, Jungian analysis and the experience of Jungian analysis by the, by the client. What are the four pillars? Uh, um, the first is a theoretical pillar, and it has to do with the uh, concept of individuation as a lifelong psychological developmental process. Um, Jung was the originator of the notion that we continue to develop psychologically throughout our lives, not only in the first years, but into our, even into our old age. So the idea of uh, individuation is fundamental to the practice. And when that's combined with <clears throat> the um, Jungian understanding of the a therapeutic relationship, which I describe in chapter two of the book, the second pillar, um, which is an in-depth notion of a multi-layered uh, relationship between the therapist and the client, combined uh, uh, with uh, working with dreams, and then the method of active imagination. Dreams is the third pillar, active imagination, the fourth pillar. Mm. When this combination is put together and you experience that with a young end, analyst, you're getting the Jungian experience. Mm. And um, that specific combination of features is not uh, shared by other schools. I won't say this makes the Jungian school better than the others, but it does make it different. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a difference that I think makes a difference. Uh, it's an important difference, especially for people um, undergoing analysis in the second half of life, in-depth analysis and transformation. Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to uh, more surface type psychotherapy. Well, it's a great book. Uh, I have it and I've read it and I don't think there's another book like it. So I think it was important that that it be written and, and published. And then the other book uh, that you have, it's coming out on March 15th. It's actually volume four of your collected writings, and it's titled The Practice of Jungian Psychoanalysis. Yes. Um, well, the first one was individuation. <clears throat> the second one was uh, myth and psychology. And the third one was transformation. Uh, so uh, this is a collection of papers and writings that... Uh, that I put together uh, from um, pieces that I wrote and published uh, since the 1970s. Mm. So what the collected writings um, is, is the collection of the papers that I've published in the past. Um, they're, uh, it's, it's 
wonderful for me to go through these old papers. I make a few revisions, a few changes, uh, bring them up to date a bit with some more bibliography and references. But basically, it's a record uh, of my writing. And these are the pieces that I've written that have to do specifically uh, with the practice of Jungian analysis. Mm -hmm. So, um, so th these aren't parts of the books you've published. These are actually papers that you've published. Yeah, these are papers that I published. Some of those papers did appear in earlier books, like Practicing okay. Holmes, for instance, was a collection of papers. Mm -hmm. So some of the papers have appeared in other books. Uh, what the collected writings will be in the end is everything I've published. Uh, wherever uh, those uh, works appear, some are complete books. Uh, for instance, the next volume will be on psychology and religion. Oh, okay. And and there are, are books I've written on that topic, like the Bible as, as Dream, uh, that will appear in the collected writings. You know, collected writings, as in Jung's collected works, also contains um, books. For instance, Mysterium Conjunctionis, Volume 14 of Jung's collected works, is a separate book, but it also appears in the collected works. Mm -hmm. And then I and I just found out about this. Uh, you were telling me before we started. Did you write the introduction or the foreword to the Japanese edition of Map of the Soul, Map of the Soul 7, I'm sorry, uh, Persona, Shadow, and Ego in the World of BTS? And you said that will be coming out in May. And it was translated by Dr. Otsuka. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yes, Dr. Otsuka um, was a student at. Um, uh, at ISAP in Zurich, and one morning he came to me and said, did you know that your book, Jung's Map of the Soul, is on the recommended readings of the BTS uh, website? And I said, what's BTS? Yeah. We all did, <laughs> yeah. That's my introduction. And so uh, <clears throat> he is uh, he's now in back in Japan practicing as a Jungian psychotherapist. He's about to graduate and become a Jungian analyst in Japan. But he's also a, a very skilled and um, practiced translator. He's translated quite a few books into Japanese. And so he was interested to uh, translate this uh, Map of the Soul 7. Um, and he's just completed it. And, and just today, I sent him uh, a forward to the Japanese translation. Oh, OK. Um, yeah. So that will be coming out pretty soon, I think, in early May. Okay, so you added a foreword to it. And yes, that is uh, the fourth volume in the Map of the Soul series that was published by Chiron uh, back in 2019-2020. And that edition, that fourth volume, includes something from each of the first three volumes on Persona, Shadow, and Ego. Uh, so I, there are a lot of Japanese army, and I know they'll be very excited that there's a Japanese translation of that book out, and we will probably be giving away a copy when that comes out. I'd also like to mention that we will be giving away a copy of your Collected Writings, Volume 4, the new one. It was actually supposed to be released on March 1st, um, but it won't be released till March 15th. So we're giving it away tomorrow on Twitter because we give away a book every Friday on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Jungi and Laura and look for my pinned tweet to enter. That will start today. 
Thursday, March 3rd, and we'll do the giveaway tomorrow night, March 4th. Uh, we'll give you at least 24 hours to enter. So to get to the topic of today's episode, which is Jung's concept of psychological types and personality tests and the MBTI, Jung wrote a book called Psychological Types, which is actually volume six of his collected works. And I'd like to start by asking you, Dr. Stein, how did Jung come to develop his theory of psychological types? Uh, before I respond to that, Laura, um, it just occurred to me, Yeah. Uh, could you tell the audience why we're doing this on psychological types? Why are we uh, focusing this episode on psychological types? Yeah, because of BTS. Because I've noticed over the past few years that periodically, uh, you know, BTS is very active on social media and periodically they post something about their type. And it seems that they're using the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which we'll get into later what that is. And they will share with ARMY what their type is and how sometimes it's changed. And I think this all started back in 2017 for BTS FESTA, when they each filled out a profile of themselves, they included their type. And so ARMY is very interested in knowing what that's all about. So that's why we're discussing psychological types today. Well, let me just give a little background about Jung's, um, well, you know, volume six in his collected works, as you said, this book, uh, Psychological Types, was published in 1921. And that's uh, more or less the middle of, of Jung's career, or uh, still a bit on the early side. He turned 50 years old in 1925. So he was when he published uh, Psychological Types, he was 46 years old. And he had just, um, uh, a few years before, about seven years before, uh, removed himself from the Freudian world and had gone into his Red Book experience, his deep dive into his um, uh, own inner world and, and uh, mapping his soul, uh, which is what he did in the Red Book. And at the same time, he was um, thinking about uh, a very specific problem that had arisen in the psychoanalytic world. And that was why, how is it that you can have two very, very gifted thinkers like Sigmund Freud and Alfred Adler, both of them Viennese Jewish doctors, both of them at the level of, you could say, genius. I mean, very, very gifted people discussing the same topic, topic the human psyche, and coming up with two such different theories. Adler, on the one hand, focusing on the issue of inferiority and superiority and the will to power, the need for power and control. Um, Freud, on the other hand, focusing on the issue of um, instinct and sexuality and uh, um, all that went into, into Freud's psychoanalytic theory, looking at the same phenomena and coming up with two very different accounts. So that was the problem that Jung was trying to solve at first. Um, and so he worked on uh, psychological types uh, to explain differences that have sometimes been called cognitive differences 
that people show when they are uh, creating theories or when they're trying to explain something or understand something or um, uh, express their views, uh, go about their daily uh, lives and take care of their children and families and whatever they're doing. They employ certain cognitive tools to navigate the world uh, and to create theories. So um, the psychological types was an attempt to sort out different ways in which people do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it took Jung uh, a lot of effort and uh, he worked on this for about eight years. He was in conversation with a number of other people. He presented early versions of his theory to the, at the psychology club in Zurich in the, in the teens, uh, and then finally finished the work and it was published in 1921. And um, what he uh, claims um, in this work is that um, um, people are significantly different in how they explain to themselves and to other people how the world is put together, um, how to understand things, um, how they uh, construct um, the story of their lives or um, construct theories about uh, whatever, politics or economics or psychology. They employ certain specific functions and attitudes. And so um, what he talks about is two attitudes and four functions that are combined to create eight psychological types. Um, if you try to read the book, I, and for those people who are really um, uh, uh, love to read difficult texts uh, and very deep texts, I, I suggest that you um, uh, just start going into it and take your time and you get uh, a kind of history of Western thought uh, in this book, because Jung goes through many philosophers, theologians, poets, uh, different kinds of typology that have been proposed in Western intellectual history. Um, he really goes through the whole library uh, of material of Western intellectual developments, um, and he comes up and sorts these different thinkers, for instance, Plato and Aristotle, uh, two philosophers who are very different in their style of thinking, the way they think, uh, according to his scheme that he uh, outlines in this book. Um, so that's the background. And then um, <clears throat> Jung uses this typology um, as a kind of uh, reference point in many of his other works. He doesn't really develop it further in his writings, but he uses it to um, explain um, uh, opposites, to explain conflicts, to explain differences of uh, um, various kinds. For instance, in, in alchemy, you have um, different ways of thinking among the alchemists, or you have uh, fourfold expressions of wholeness, that Jung will use his typology to say this matches the typological setup, which is based on the number four as a number of wholeness. Uh, and so he uses it in various different ways throughout his writings. 
and um, uh, but he doesn't uh, do much more with it. Now, other people have done quite a bit more with it. We can get into that in a moment. You mentioned the Myers-Briggs uh, type indicator, MBTI. Um, and there are other uh, typology um, uh, tests and uh, people who've worked with uh, psychological types and really extended Jung's thinking in very interesting ways. And Jungian analysts, um, I could have made a fifth pillar in my book, uh, and that would have been the use of typology and analysis because Jungian analysts all learn the typology and some of them use it quite a bit in their work and others not so much, but they all know about it and will occasionally use it to try to understand things like the difference between themselves and their client. Um, um, a friend of mine once um, told me that uh, in his view, Jung should have won the Nobel Peace Prize for this work. And I said, why? And he said, it's the greatest work ever written on tolerance, mm. on the tolerance of differences, how to understand differences mm -hmm. and work with them. Mm. Uh, and if you use it, you can have a more peaceful life, perhaps, mm -hmm. maybe a better marriage even, uh, understand your children better your colleagues, your, uh, the people you work with. Um, and um, it's a very useful tool. Mm -hmm. and, and knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are, I think that it's also, uh, al along with being beneficial uh, in relationships, but also with work. Because after I learned about uh, psychological types and, and my, my own specifically, it made me understand why I do better at certain tasks yeah. and why certain jobs I've had over the years, I really struggled with. And it wasn't because of a lack of uh, education or knowledge. It just was, it didn't suit me. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that, that is. Yeah. And uh, um, intelligence is completely separate from typology. Mm -hmm. Thinking types are not smarter than feeling types. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, intelligence is a whole different uh, story, a uh, different aspect of, uh, of how the brain works. Um, the types are the, the ways in which intelligence uses these tools, the, the, these tools, uh, the, the typological um, fe uh, features of the mind can be used by the intelligence in different ways. So very smart feeling types and rather stupid thinking types. <laughs> so, okay, so let, yeah, let's go over what these are, these terms that you're using. I'd like uh, for you to explain to the listeners, the viewers, uh, what each of the term me terms mean. So I have these um, yes. slides okay. that I created and the first right. one is we start with the two basic attitudes and one is extrovert, the other's introvert. And sometimes we'll see the word extrovert written with an O instead of an A. Yes, uh, you corrected me on that. I sometimes, I think it's better with an A, extrovert. Um, and what is an attitude? Let's start with that. So, okay. <clears throat> In the typology system, there are two attitudes, extroversion and introversion. An attitude is a, 
um, a habitual way of uh, approaching something. Um, in this case, uh, objects. How do you approach the object habitually? What is your fallback position? Uh, uh, extroverts approach outer objects in an objective way. They're objective. If you, um, they, they attach themselves to an object. They go to an object. They look at an object. And the object world, the surrounding world, is very real to them and has really occupies the, the center of their attention. They're constantly checking out what's in the world around them, looking at it, testing it, uh, trying to improve it, whatever. Extroversion has to do with dealing with objects in the outer world. Okay. Introversion has to do with dealing with the subjective side of oneself. So it isn't that introverts don't see the world around them, but they're looking more at their reaction to the world around them than they are at the world itself. They're more subjective than objective. So um, if you ask an extroverted person to describe a trip or a meal, they'll give you all the details, what they ate, what they saw, the colors, uh, the sunsets, uh, the beaches, and so on. An introvert will tell you um, how they experienced all that. Mm -hmm. um, this one struck, the, struck them as very interesting. That they didn't care for very much. The focus is much more to the subjective. And so their account will tell you about them and how they experienced the trip. The extrovert will tell you what was on the trip. That's a basic difference. Um, and it's easy, fairly easy, to uh, sort that difference uh, between, if you think about your friends, some that are much more outgoing. It isn't just being sociable. Um, that isn't necessarily a test of extroversion, although introverts tend not to be as sociable as extroverts. Mm -hmm. But it's where their attention is focused and um, how they talk about their experience. Um, could I give an example? I'd like to give an example here, if I may. Um, the first time I went to a BTS concert was here in Chicago in 2019. And afterward, uh, an army on Twitter asked me about the concert. You know, how did you like the concert? And I explained, or I, I, I mentioned uh, the stage, the setting, the Chicago sky, uh, what we can see because it's an outdoor stadium and on and on about the weather and he got mad at me on twitter and he said you're 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 describing the atmosphere and the scenery uh you know what did you feel and yeah. i thought i'm an extrovert <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay so yeah that that's just a quick little example yeah good um now um if uh, for the audience just think about yourself um, how do you relate to objects most of the time the other point to make is that everybody is both extroverted and introverted. And mm -hmm. I'll say this about, all, about the four functions as well. We all have everything. It's just what is your fallback position? What is your habitual approach? Um, what do you do most of the time? But um, uh, Laura, you're an extroverted person, but you also have strong introverted qualities. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm introverted and I have extroverted qualities. So. Mm -hmm. um, and it's situational also. In some situations, my wife will be very extroverted, for instance. In other situations, I know her, that she's more introverted than extroverted and prefers 
uh, introverted activities. Um, uh, but when she enters a, a room, she's trained to um, put on a persona, and that persona is a very extroverted American. You know, she's from Texas. You all, uh, how y'all doing? Y'all come? You know that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And open, uh, but um, uh, I'm Canadian. I don't have that kind of persona, mm. so I can stand in the corner and talk to one or two people, uh, unless I'm on stage. But um, yeah, I was wondering if this was cultural and how our the, our culture, our nationality, fit into this. Well, definitely, you, you can make some generalizations. Uh, you could say Americans are more extroverted than the Swiss. But you can find very introverted Americans, right. and you can find extroverted Swiss. Uh, it's the general population or the cultural preference. The Swiss culture, for instance, uh, places a tremendous value on privacy. Mm -hmm. um, people don't talk about their bank accounts. They don't talk about their sexual lives. They don't talk to other people about their family members. They're very private. Um, and. Um, uh, so it's known as a much more introverted culture. But if you make friends with the Swiss, it's a very deep friendship. Mm. Um, and, um, and it's uh, often lifelong. Uh, extroverted friendships tend to be more superficial. They're yeah. very intense while you're around or you're with the person, but absent the person, oh, you're with somebody else. Yeah. Uh, American politicians, for instance, tend to be more extrovert. Bill Clinton was an amazing extrovert go into a room, people afterwards, he could remember all their names, uh, having had conversations with all of them and um, having picked up the atmosphere. You know, extroverts are good at picking up what's in the atmosphere around them. Introverts don't notice that very much. They notice the inner atmosphere, how they're feeling about it, or what it's doing to them subjectively. Uh, so they can give you that account. But let's go to the functions now too, Laura, so we okay. can cover that bit. So to those two um, attitudes, Jung added four what he called functions. And these are tools um, that we use to orient ourselves. Um, and he put them uh, in, a, in a pattern like this uh, as opposites. He said, we have two non-rational functions sensation and intuition. Those are functions that simply take in information. Um, they don't make any judgments about the information. They don't sort the information. They just take it in. So your senses, that's the sensate function. You see, hear, taste, um, uh, uh, touch, and so on, the five senses. Intuition is like a sixth sense. It gives you information that it's kind of invisible. It comes to you through the unconscious. You pick up things and suddenly it's in your head. Sometimes it's extroverted and sometimes it's introverted, as I'll say later. But uh, these two functions simply give you information and Jung called them rational. So the senses and um, what you pick up with a sixth sense, intuition. And then uh, there are the two rational functions, thinking and feeling. Um, thinking is obviously rational. We, we apply the rules of logic when we do thinking. Uh, thinking is a kind of arrangement and organizing and sorting, uh, putting things uh, 
uh, in a logical order or in a sequence. Um, so that's a function that's very much used by um, uh, scientists or people who organize um, um, uh, their um, their working uh, situations, their uh, businesses, and so on. It can be strategic thinking. It can be immediate uh, here and now thinking. But it's it obeys the rules of of uh, reason and logic. Now. Jung called its opposite uh, rational function feeling. And that's a little tricky because yeah. by that he doesn't just mean emotional reactions. He says this is a valuing function. Mm -hmm. It values according to rules. It's also rational. But those aren't the, the rules of logic um, that the thinking type uses. Those are the rules of the heart. Those are the rules of your, um, your value system. So feeling types, uh, uh, the feeling function will make decisions uh, based on values. Is this just or unjust? Uh, is this right or wrong? Um, yeah. Is this um, um, uh, empathic or not empathic? Depending on what your values are. Um, and, and the feeling function isn't based on necessarily the same values for everybody, <clears throat> but they tend to cluster uh, around five or six basic values that feeling types use to make their <clears throat> uh, orientation in life and their decisions. So these two functions, thinking and feeling, um, um, organize us in a rational way so we can make decisions. They're decision-making functions. They are the deciders. Um, and um, in the Myers-Briggs system, you have P and J, the perceiving functions and the judging functions. Perceiving functions are sensation and intuition, and the thinking functions are, and the um, judging functions are thinking and feeling. Now, Types. Can we have the next slide? Uh, yeah. Laura? If you put these together, these two attitudes and these four functions, you come up with eight types, uh, eight combinations. And these are called the psychological types. So you have extroverted thinking, that is rational, uh, a rational approach to sorting the world looking outward. So say you want to organize the inventory in your closet according to um, the dates in which you bought your clothes or colors or something, you would uh, apply extroverted thinking. Um, if you want to uh, think um, strategically about your business, you might uh, employ um, extroverted thinking to make um, projections, uh, mathematical projections about probabilities, what's going to happen in the future, and you use probability theory. So mathematics is very much tuned into thinking. Um, and uh, if it's applied to the outer world, then it's extroverted thinking. Um, if it's applied to the inner world, um, like pure mathematics doesn't have much reference to the outer world. I had a a friend who uh, passed away some years ago, he was a mathematician, very introverted thinker, 
um, but he did pure mathematics. And if those theories and theorems and findings uh, could be used in the outer world on objects building bridges or skyscrapers, that was fine with him, but he wasn't interested in that part. Mm -hmm. He was just interested in the numbers. And that uh, number theory is, you know, pure uh, inner world stuff. So introverted thinking, also some philosophers like Plato was an introverted thinker. Um, Aristotle was a more extroverted thinker, thinking about animals and plants and sorting them into various categories and so on. Then you have extroverted feeling and introverted feeling. Again, extroverted feeling has to do with uh, applying the feeling function to the world around you. Um, um, the um, people who create ethical systems um, are often uh, um, extroverted thinkers. Ethics applies to your relationship to other people um, and it obeys certain ethical rules. Uh, the Ten Commandments, for instance, uh, thou shalt not kill, uh, thou shalt obey thy father and mother. These are values uh, that can be applied uh, to the world around. So ethical thinkers will um, use their um, um, uh, thinking function or their feeling function uh, to uh, apply these rules to the world around them. An introverted um, uh, feeling type is a very deep person who goes inward to find the value that is right for this situation. And we all have to use these functions. If you're in a situation where your thinking can't give you the answer, you might turn to your feeling and say, well, what do I feel deeply about this? What is the value that I am, um, uh, that I want to be consistent with? For instance, uh, people who um, um, go through a divorce and they can't decide should they or shouldn't they. Um, they, can, they can do it through thinking and sort out all the financial issues. But when it comes to the actual decision, they might have to go inward and say, well, what does this marriage and what does the idea of marriage and the value of marriage really mean to me? Um, is it something that I want to separate myself from in favor of another value that is maybe more important, independence or freedom? Um, so the introverted feeling is very important for uh, making decisions that are impossible for the thinking function to uh, accomplish because thinking doesn't, uh, thinking goes by logic and you make two columns on a piece of paper and you add up the results. That's a thinking function working at it, but it doesn't answer the heart and the deepest values that we hold. Uh, and then there's extroverted sensate and introverted sensate. Extroverted sensate's obvious, like in the world around you with your senses. And this is probably the first function that you come into the world with, that you're when you're born. Uh, you know, if you've ever watched uh, the birth of an infant, today is my son's birthday, and I was there when he was born. Mm -hmm. um, I remember him. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, opening up his eyes and looking around and hearing some sounds. And uh, I think he knew the sound of my voice from when he was in his mother's tummy. Yeah. And I was 
speak to him. So he, he looked at me, he recognized that sound. Mm. So he's using his extroverted sensate function okay. uh, right away. He doesn't have the, the rational functions yet. Those grow uh, with the brain. As the brain develops, probably by the third or fourth year, they're coming into a pretty good uh, play. And by the time you're 20 years old, they're all set up and ready to go, the cognitive functions. Uh, but the, um, the uh, um, sensate and intuition come on board much earlier. Uh, probably because you you really basically need those things to survive. Uh, uh, introverted uh, sensate would tell you that you're hungry, so you cry. Uh, you have a tummy ache, so you cry. And that's a message to your mother to change your diaper or give you some food. Um, so these, uh, these non-rational um, functions that give us information that we can use to communicate with or tell ourselves what's going on around us um, are very essential and very basic. And those are laid down very early in life. Um, and sometimes they remain the dominant functions throughout life, even after the rational functions come into play. The rational functions um, say kick in when you're, uh, when you're in, in junior high school and you suddenly develop a tremendous interest in history or mathematics or science. And that's a, that's a, that tells you something, that tells you that your brain uh, um, likes that kind of activity. Um, where you end up typologically probably has a lot to do with um, how your brain is uh, organizing and what it enjoys doing. Um, you find a, a, a kind of um, base position, habitual position, um, in your uh, in your life, a fallback position that you use a lot because it gives you some pleasure. Mm. Um, I love listening to music. That's my experience of of the sensate function. I love listening to classical music, especially if I'm too tired to read a book or think anymore. Or, um, and it gives me a lot of pleasure. Those sounds coming in um, and the patterns that uh, form and that sounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the emotion that comes with it. Um, the feeling function uh, is, um, uh, is emotional, but emotional in the sense that when we touch our deep values, the values that, that really are most fundamental, to, as Pascal said, uh, the heart has its reasons. You know, the head, the theologians have their reasoning, but the feeling type, he says, the heart has its reasons. Um, and when we touch that, we tend to feel emotion because uh, it's an area of our, of our psyche that is very important to us. Um, and especially if it's um, not a highly developed function, uh, you tend to be more emotional around your less developed functions. Um, mm all have all the functions, but some are more developed than others. So we speak about a superior function, for instance, extroverted thinking, that's your superior function. And the opposite to that would be your inferior function. And uh, if you go back to the previous yeah. slide, um, the opposite to thinking is feeling. So if thinking is extroverted, um, feeling would probably be introverted, and that would be your, quotes, inferior function. 
if introverted feeling is your inferior function and you touch on these values of the heart, you will feel tremendous emotion because it's, it's in the unconscious and it's, um, it's not as refined and not as developed. It's more gross and more, uh, it affects your body and uh, your whole uh, psychic system comes flooding in. So um, we think of a superior function and an inferior function. And then we also think of a secondary function. So you have a first function, let's say it's thinking at the top, and then your second function would be either sensation or intuition. Now that's called the auxiliary function. And that means that it supplements the thinking. Thinking by itself uh, isn't very stable. It, uh, it stands on weak, uh, on weak legs. It needs another leg. It's just one leg. It needs a second leg. And so if thinking is extroverted, the auxiliary function tends to um, give it some balance by being introverted. And so uh, it will, the introversion and extroversion get somewhat balanced, which we need, we need balance. Mm -hmm. And the two functions can kind of correct each other. So if you're doing strategic thinking, for instance, you can do it with your thinking function, but then your intuition might come in and say, but I have a hunch things aren't going to go that way. I just mm -hmm. gut feeling that's not the way it's going to go. And then you pull back a little bit on your thinking and you don't go as fast ahead with it. You're corrected, you're pulled back, you have some doubts, you have some questions. And that's very good because if we just use one function, we become very one-sided and we make decisions that uh, can be very one-sided and get us into a lot of trouble as we see in the world around us. Um, making decisions that are too one-sided uh, produce very uh, bad results in the end. So we need to think of ourselves as having all of these functions, all four functions, both attitudes, but using some of them more than others. Um, now, if I may, the next question would be, what do we do with this? Yeah. Um, with this uh, good information. Uh, it's a, it's, this is all toward self-understanding, toward finding out how you function, how other people function and their preferences. Um, um, there are a number of things we can do with it. Um, we can um, become tolerant of differences enough at least in order to listen carefully to a different point of view. An extrovert can listen to an introvert's point of view. If you use your introverted attitude to put yourself into their position, or a thinking type can listen to a sensate type. Um, uh, so it, it extends our, our, our capacity to be in dialogue with other people by allowing for differences enough so that the other person can actually be heard in a in a more complete way let's say we can all hear with our ears we hear the words uh, you tell me your feelings i hear it with my ears but it it takes more to really get inside your way of seeing when you say those words what how you're looking at the world and how you're um, making your uh, statement or your decisions uh, this is a especially important in 
um, the um, business relationships where um, a lot depends on making a, having a, a good discussion with someone to form a partnership or understand a difference. Um, it, it's very helpful in marriages. It's helpful in families, understanding children who are growing into their typology and haven't arrived there yet. Um, and analysts um, use this uh, typological understanding quite a bit to understand uh, the nature uh, um, um, Oh, hang on just a second. You cut out a little bit, Dr. Stein. Would you repeat the last thing you said? Yes. Um, analysts um, will use this uh, typological understanding to understand their clients better. Mm -hmm. uh, if the analyst is introverted and an extroverted client comes into the office, he has to change his typology in a sense and move himself over into his extroverted side in order to really catch what that person is saying. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's very flat and it seems uninteresting. And to an introvert, an extrovert's account of things might be boring or uh, yeah. just matter of fact. Um, but to get inside that and, and see the world the way they see it um, is a very important uh, uh, task that the uh, that the analyst or the psychotherapist needs to uh, be able to um, to do in order to make the, the therapeutic relationship effective. Now, what we shouldn't do, <laughs> and Jung cautions, cautions against this right at the beginning of his book. He said, I didn't create this in order to put people in boxes. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. I don't want this to become a parlor game. You know, mm -hmm. you're an INTJ. I'm an ENFP. And that's like saying, well, you've got blue eyes and that's all you are. And I've got brown eyes and that's all I am. This is just one feature of a personality. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, to put people in boxes and keep them in the box uh, is, um, is a disservice to typology. So we advise against doing that. Um, and the other thing to realize is that the others also have the other attitudes and types. So they might prefer in a certain situation to use a fallback typology, but in another situation, they may come forward in a surprising way uh, in a, in a, and adapt to a different kind of situation with another part of their uh, typological inventory. Mm -hmm. so we, we need to leave space for people to, to grow. Um, there is um, a, uh, I think you can uh, probably Google this, um, um, this uh, website uh, called uh, Gifts Compass gifts compass and it's a typological program set up by a man named james johnston who um, offers a typological test you can take you can take the test and locate yourself but it doesn't uh, it, it it shows you your more developed functions and attitude and your less developed ones in a circle in a, in a kind of mandala shape and then the suggestion is to work on your less developed ones in order to individuate further. So he ties together the project of individuation, which is mm -hmm. like growth, with 
typology. And I think it's a very good use of typology to observe our inferior functions. We have more than one. Um, and um, pay uh, attention to those because they're very valuable and sometimes they have a lot of energy to them. Uh, Mary Louise von Franz wrote a very important uh, famous paper called The Inferior Function, uh, published in a book called Jung's Typology. And um, she says that the inferior function in the second half of life has a tremendous amount of um, energy in it because it, it hasn't been used very much. Yeah. And so it can become very fascinating and um, energizing to engage the inferior function. So people who haven't paid very much attention to the sensate world in their lives suddenly become painters. Um, um, Churchill uh, became yeah. a, a rather well-known painter in his late years. Mm -hmm. and fascinated with color and with form and shape. Uh, they're not professional painters, but they they get very interested and has a lot of energy for it. And it's very developmentally advancing for them to uh, engage with their inferior function like that. Mm -hmm. I would like to um, bring up the Myers-Briggs type indicator right now, if I could, uh, because we'd mentioned it earlier, but we didn't explain what it was. And it is based on Jung's model. Uh, it was developed by two Americans, Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers. Uh, this was back in, Catherine began her research back in 1917. I didn't realize it had been around that long. And it was after Jung's book, which we mentioned earlier, Psychological Types, was translated into English in 1923 that they uh, that she noticed similarities uh, with her research, but she doesn't have any formal training in psychology. Neither the mother nor the daughter were psychologists. And I don't know where or how they develop their theories, but why I gravitate toward Jung is because he was a trained psychiatrist and a, a clinician and, and he saw patients for decades, and he has a lot of experience. But the Myers-Briggs type indicator, as you mentioned, introduced two additional fields, judgment and perception. And so they have 16 types, where the slide I was showing earlier shows Jung's model with eight types. There are 16 types in the Myers-Briggs. And my, my concern is that people, as we said, tend to label themselves. They take a personality test and what they can come, what it comes up with, what the results are that day is just for that day. And so I'd like for you to tell us what you think about how those tests work and how they ch our type could change over time or maybe be based on you know, what part of us is taking the test on that day. That's right. It, uh, depending on the day you take the test, you can come up with different results. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, um, that's a problem with the test. The other problem is that it's forced choice. Um, yeah. It's either or. Uh, if you take the test, you, it gives you two choices and you have to decide which one. <clears throat> and uh, on one day you might choose one thing and the next day you might choose the other. Um, there's a, another test called the Singer-Loomis inventories, the SLIP test, 
which uh, freed itself from the forced choice option. Uh, and so you get uh, a, a different uh, typological picture when you take that. It isn't either or. It isn't based on a, a series of either or choices, but it's based on uh, a list of preferences that you can rank. Um, and um, also James Johnston's test is not a forced uh, choice uh, between uh, a binary test. So I think that's one of the features that is problematic about Myers-Briggs. Um, on the, that said, it, it's been a very successful test. I think it's one of the most widely used psychological tests in the world. It's used by military, it's used by big businesses um, and personnel um, uh, uh, departments find it very useful for placing people in certain roles. So um, it isn't by any means worthless or incorrect. It mm -hmm. offers some general guidance. Mm -hmm. to, um, um, you know, would you be a good manager of a group? Well, you wouldn't be a very good manager if you're an introverted, think you're intuitive type. You have to pay attention to the group. If your extroverted feeling is strong, um, and and you're you know you're gifted, uh, otherwise you might be a good group manager. Um, uh, if you're you know if you're um, an introverted uh, thinking with strong sensation, maybe you'd be a good programmer. Um, so um, they the, the my MBTI has been used for placing people in certain roles. Now that can be a trap too, because mm -hmm. people outgrow their roles mm -hmm. um, and they outgrow their typology in a sense. So yeah. uh, assuming that uh, individuation continues to take place in life, the, uh, the box that you're in at one point isn't gonna fit. You aren't gonna fit into that box at another point. And so, uh, that's why it's important to keep uh, individuation in mind that people do change and grow mm -hmm. um, and their typology changes with them. Yeah. Not only in their early years uh, when we're just beginning to take shape, but in the second half of life, extroverted people tend to pick up introversion. Introverted people tend to pick up extroversion. And um, that's very important that we do that. Uh, with the understanding that the goal of individuation is psychological wholeness, to yeah. get as much of this with into your um, mandala uh, and up into your conscious um, repertoire as as possible. Mm -hmm. I was, as a child, very introverted, and painfully so. And it wasn't until I don't know, maybe. I mean, after my analysis that I became more extroverted, it wasn't a conscious decision, it happened naturally. And going back to my example of earlier, when I was at my first BTS concert, and somebody asked me about my experience, and I, ex I described the sky, and the weather and the stage. Um, so being aware of that, because the the army who asked me that question, and and then reacted to my response made me whoa take a look at myself so is it the case dr stein that uh we need to 
look at the other side because the goal is wholeness, right? The psyche is seeking balance and wholeness. And so if we are too locked into what your type is, then you're never going to develop and develop, I think is the right word, develop those other functions and attitudes. Yes, absolutely. Um, the other thing uh, that you um, remind me of, um, Laura, with your comment there is that <clears throat> We uh, sometimes give the person we're talking to what we think they want to hear. Mm -hmm. In other words, we, uh, we adopt a persona to the situation that might not be our fallback, uh, actual fallback um, you know, preference. Uh, so maybe in speaking to a group, um, the army group, it, it could be that you had the impression that what they wanted to hear was a description of uh, the scene that you mm -hmm. that you were in. Okay. But if you were talking perhaps to a close friend, um, to uh, to your husband or to somebody in your intimate circle about the experience, you might have given a different rendition of um, a more in, on the introverted side of your experience. Mm -hmm. It also depends on context, how we um, you know present ourselves and what we kinds of statements we make. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had an, a couple notes here. Uh, at what age can you determine your type as far as your your preferences or or what's most developed? You were talking about the the child and and the extroverted sensation. Um, but as far as a personality, at, at what age would you say that is formed? Well, you know, it's a it's a, a process of formation. So you have childhood, and then you have um, adolescence, and then you have young adulthood. I would say by the time you reach midlife, mm. <clears throat> your main preferences have taken form, and you've formed habits and interests that correspond. Um, you kind of discover yourself as you go through different systems. You know, the school system, athletics. Uh, social life, it takes a while to sort out and to come to yourself in a sense. It's, it's a kind of finding your, um, your, your preferred mode of uh, modus operandi. Um, uh, so that by midlife, your age of 35, 40, you're pretty well set up. Um, and then with the midlife transition, you know, things start to change and the uh, less developed functions will start coming forward and, and being needed uh, to go forward um, because you've got different uh, uh, tasks to perform, you've got uh, different roles. And um, so the um, development unfolds uh, after midlife again in a, in a particular way. So then by the time you reach retirement age, 65, 70, something like that, you've kind of covered the gambit and hopefully you've, you're in a position to use more or less the, the whole range of options, although you still always will have a certain preference. Um, I prefer, for instance, reading to um, um, watching television. Um, mm -hmm. For me, reading is a kind of introverted 
thinking activity that I started doing when I was a boy, a teenager, and I've been doing all my life, and you can see behind me um, yeah. books. <laughs> they're my friends. So um, the typology doesn't really leave you, but it gets filled out with a lot of other aspects of your personality over time. Mm -hmm. And so is this, would you say, uh, influenced by your up uh, your upbringing, your family, or is that you're sort of born with a personality, a blueprint? You're probably, you're probably born with a preference for introversion or extroversion. You can see that okay. in the, the shyness uh, tests that are given to, to infants. You know, some infants are shy, others go quickly to other people or strangers. Um, but you're probably born with um, a certain tendency but then culture, family makes a difference. You have what's called the, the cross-type problem, where people's culture and families don't agree with their innate preference, let's say. And so they adapt themselves, and they become the type that's wanted by the family mm -hmm. and the culture. But it doesn't really suit them, so they have a kind of conflict with themselves that in therapy they might break out of. Maybe that happened yeah. to you. Um, yeah. you break out of it and find yourself in a very different way and it's a kind of self-discovery oh this is what i am this is what i prefer this is what a, the way i want to be uh, so now with bts you know these are people more or less under 30 aren't they still yes they and they're changing you can see that in their uh, announcements they're still in process um mm -hmm. uh, Probably it will start getting set up fairly stably as they get into their 30s, and they will become um, um, a certain you know typological profile. Um, and then again, they will change as they get older. But they're they're in process right now. That's why you see those changes. They're still in process. Uh, so I have uh, two questions uh, from the listeners um, that I'd like to mention here. One is uh, that Jung's typology places the thinking and feeling types at opposite ends of the spectrum. Can you give us an example of how a thinking type might interpret a situation differently than a feeling type? Or stated another way, how might their thinking processes differ? All right. Um, I'll give you a, an example. <clears throat> this mathematics friend of mine, um, was a night owl. And um, he went to a, a department store at five minutes to 12. They, they had a closing time of 12 o'clock. Okay. Went to the department store at five to 12, and they wouldn't let him in. And he protested and he said, but you say that you're open until 12 o'clock. It's only five till 12. Yeah. These people were exhausted and he couldn't pick that up. He couldn't mm -hmm. see that. He didn't get it. In other words, his thinking ruled. You said 12 o'clock, yeah. I'm a man of numbers. It's five till 12, I should be able to come in for five minutes and get what I want. And they didn't want any more new customers in there. Right. A feeling type would have never gone there at five to 12. Mm. Oh, these people are exhausted. If I were in their situation, the value of empathy, um, consideration of others, that's a feeling reaction. Um, so they're very different uh, 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 ways of operating. 
Got it. To get off in just a couple of minutes. So maybe one more question. Okay, one more quick question. Uh, I know this is outside the topic, but I wanted to know how to differentiate between philosophy and psychology. Philosophy is, uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, well, there are some philosophies that are a combination of mm -hmm. psychology and philosophy, especially some modern philosophies. But if you go to very particular philosophers, like uh, Whitehead, for instance, or Bertrand Russell, you get pure thinking types. Um, these are people who operate by the rules of logic. It's called logical positivism. Um, that's a, a pure thinking philosophy. On the other hand, if you go to a, a philosopher like Plato, um, there's a lot of psychology in Plato or, or material that you can use for psychology. Yeah. It's a, psychology is a study of the psyche. Philosophy is an attempt to put together a, a construction that um, explains the world, the whole world. Um, in a logical, rational way. Um, but uh, some philosophers bring in quite a lot of psychology or feeling function, um, ethics, values. Uh, Heidegger, for instance, uh, yeah. you could say is a psychologist and a philosopher. You could say Jung is a philosopher and a psychologist. Yeah. Uh, so there are mixtures. It isn't a clear distinction, but uh, Jung would not, Jung's work would not be studied in a department of philosophy at the university. Right. And the philosophers would not be studied in a department of psychology normally. So there is a departmental distinction, but uh, when you actually look at what the philosophers are doing and saying, there's sometimes an overlap in the sense of cognitive rationality and um, exploration of poetry and the soul and matters of the heart, which is the area of psychology. Great. Well, as we wrap up, I would just like to mention the upcoming Eranos conference uh, taking place April 28th through May 1st in Ascana, Switzerland. It is based on your book series that you co-edited with the late Dr. Thomas Arst, titled Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions. I will have a link to the conference in the show notes. And did you have any final words before I uh, wrap it up here, Dr. Stein? Um, one thing I would like to say, as, and this goes especially to the BTS audience, yeah. <clears throat> a friend of mine expressed this the other day, and he said, wouldn't it be great if BTS took off from Jung's Red Book, where mm -hmm. Jung calls out at the beginning, my soul, where are you? Wouldn't that be a great title for a song? They could do Map of the Soul Anima. My soul, where are you? I pass this along to BTS uh, as uh, my recommendation along with my friends. I think it'd be wonderful if they did an album on the Anima. Gave me goosebumps. <laughs> I hope they're listening. Thank you so much, Dr. Stein. I'm just gonna read the outro. Please visit the website, speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G.com for more information on everything discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. 
Speaking of Young is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and right here on our YouTube channel, Jungian and Laura. So with special thanks to Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening or watching a special live stream edition of Speaking of Young. <laughs>